Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Dave and I recently went to the story conference designed to empower business leaders and creatives to become more effective storytellers. During the conference, as we listened to speaker after speaker, Dave had an aha moment. Storytelling may work for speaking, but it doesn't work for writing. You need to show, not tell. So Dave coined the phrase story showing, and today we want to define story showing, discuss why story showing matters, and also provide six strategies for developing your story showing chops. I can't wait to hear about the inception of this phrase, Dave, but before we do that, how about we back up and talk about where we've made progress this week? Where have you made progress, Dave? So my progress is always family related or often family related. I'm getting the yard back in shape from the two dogs. I know it's the fall right now. And so just reseeding where the dogs have dug and I made huge progress. So uh, I know that's, that's nothing huge, but I'm telling you, I feel awesome after, I, <laughs> after I've repaired the lawn. So I feel like it's huge progress. I feel that. I feel like whenever we do something small around the house, it always makes me feel so much more empowered. So I get that. So my progress is this. I went on vacation last week. We went camping up in Wisconsin and coverage for my internet and phone was very limited. So I was really taken away from my everyday life, which is a wonderful gift and the reason I think we take vacations. And so I started to just ponder a little bit. What if I wrote a book? I've been thinking for a while, you know, maybe I should write a book. Maybe I have a book in me and so I really started to think about what it was that I wanted to write about. And obviously it would be around vintage, probably collecting. And so that is the topic, right? We always say that an idea has two, two parts to it. And so it's the topic. What I'm writing about would be about collecting, why collectors collect. But then I thought, but what am I saying about why collectors collect? And so I started to grapple with that a little bit. And I realized that the reason why we collectors collect is because of the stories and the emotional connection. We are intrigued by the stories of the items. We love the stories of how we found the items. And then we love the stories that of why they, the things are important to us and the emotional connection they have. So I think that that might be getting closer to the idea for my book someday. <laughs> so there we go. That's progress. I love that idea. And I love the, your process in how you're thinking about it. What's my topic? And then, okay, what, I'm, what am I going to say about that? And man, I think you are, I could see all different types of structure. You could do little vignettes for these different items. You could do larger meta stories. Like, I mean, oh my gosh, you could do it around people or you could do the stories around items that tell stories of people. So as you know, I have this coined hashtag called cheek UITB, which is an acronym for the quest is the best. And 
So every Tuesday, people share an item that they found. And this year, we're and we go through the alphabet, like A through Z, like I'm going on an antiquing trip and I'm buying A, B, you know, and then you go through. So this year, instead of just doing like A is for Apple, B is for whatever, and you then you post something like that, I'm doing idioms. <laughs> so anyway, there are great stories that go along with the pictures and also the idioms that relate to the picture. So I was thinking the book might be structured around different people, which might be, so maybe more of an anthology or a collection of collectors. So who knows? I'm thinking through it still. <laughs> what I love about it is it's something I could dip in, read a story and then read another story and even look for things that I've collected that might be tied to maybe what you're writing about. I don't know. I just yeah. love the idea. Yeah. Well, thanks. Anyway. Time getting away is a wonderful thing. I know you're going to be getting away soon too. So I hope that you have some of that refreshing time for yourself. All right, Dave, let's dive into this. Can you tell us a little bit more about your aha moment when you coined the word story showing? I know that you told me about it. So we attended this conference in Nashville. It was called the Story Conference. There may be a hundred story conferences across the country. This one what was it, early, late, late September. And the story, and the conference was great, right? But what made that, the conference so powerful were the visuals. And they had this huge digital mural that was in the front of the, of the, of the theater with two digital screens on either side. It, it was magnificent, the audio, the visual. And then Melissa and I, had not had to, we got to do a special session on writing. And it was how to put your story to words. And I just thought, oh my gosh, it's so much different to write a story because you don't have the audio, you don't have the visual, you don't have the motion, right? In video or motion graphics. So you're stuck with words. (laughs) And so there is an old adage that is called show, not tell. It's like the first thing you learn if you take a writing class. You must show, you can't tell. And so all the language was around storytelling at this conference. And I realized for writers, we can't storytell. We can only story show, thus the phrase story showing, not storytelling. So storytelling is when an author summarizes or uses exposition to simply tell what is happening. He walked down the street and it was a cold day and they were going to go there and he felt really bad and this happened and this happened. It's kind of like reporting. It's almost like the so-called inverted pyramid of journalism, least of news writing, where you have the main story, the main thesis, and then you, as you write further down, you get more specific into details. But it's not it's not really showing, it's, it's more telling. And so if you're going to write narrative, and most of us are writing narratives, like most of us are writing novels, or we're writing memoirs, or, and I've written a lot of fic, uh, nonfiction myself, we're writing stories as we're also writing nonfiction. We're telling a little anecdote within the middle of a of a, of a chapter, let's say, or you're starting the chapter. And so that story as well needs to be, in a sense, be shown through the words and not just simply narrating and telling the story. Does that make sense, Melissa? Yeah, it totally does. And so 
It describes experiences of the characters or yourself if you're writing a memoir through description and engaging the senses. And the reason why this is important is because that is how readers connect with your writing, is if you engage them on an emotional level, if you engage the senses, if they can see themselves and put themselves in the world, in the story that you are creating, that you are showing them. So yes, it makes total sense. And storytelling, as you said, is fine for speaking. You can get away with it, not to mention just the audio and visuals that you have through through the digital realm with which we live. But Speaking, you also have intonation, which you can convey an emotion, right? So you don't have intonation, speaking intonation when you're showing, when your story showing. So you have to show that in your writing, right? Through language. And you also have nonverbal cues, right? When, when you're speaking. And so, and you don't have that in, in writing. So again, you have to show through your writing. So with writing, the audience simply expects more from you. You have to create a scene, you have to develop characters and engage the senses through the words. It's about really creating a sensory experience so your readers feel present with the characters and will take the journey with the characters. I like to think of it, Dave, and I don't, we've talked, I think I wrote a tipster on this. I like to think of it as like, if a movie director were to turn your story into a movie or maybe a a show. Would they be able to create the scene and direct it in such a way that reflects exactly how you envisioned it? Or would they take what you wrote and would be completely flat because you haven't given them enough details to work with or enough imagery or cues that the director could use when creating this scene? So I think it's helpful when you're writing is like, if a director were to take this scene, would they be able to direct it in a way that is exactly how I imagine it in my mind? I think I mentioned this in another episode, but I was watching some kind of behind the scenes footage from the show Yellowstone, which is so popular right now. And it was, it was a stuntman who was talking about how he was so committed to executing the stunt as the writer had intended. And I thought, oh my gosh, that writer who wrote that script must have been really specific about what he wanted. And so it almost left it so there was hardly any interpretation. It was like the writer wrote it down, and that is exactly how they executed it, which made me say, once again, how important writers are and how important that level of detail is, which is all about showing, not telling. I'll just mention this, and we'll probably mention it throughout, that story showing demands slowing down, placing yourself in the scene, and asking deeper questions about the characters and their motives and how they're acting and what they look like and are feeling, and also the scene and what surrounds them. So story showing takes time, just as good writing takes time. And I'll just repeat that again, I'm sure, throughout this entire episode. All right, let's get into some real specific strategies for story showing versus storytelling. And the first one is to add start scene and end scene to your document before you go to work on showing. Dave, how about you talk a little bit about this? So think of it like this. Let's say you have a chapter and you kind of know where you're going with the chapter. Character is in this place. And by the end of the chapter, whether you're writing a memoir whether even writing nonfiction, you're going to end up in a different place. So what I do is I would say start scene and end scene. So that chapter is going to have a bunch of little anecdotes in there. And each of those anecdotes should have a start scene and an end scene. So 
each of those little mini stories are a scene. Think of it like that. So you may have 10, 15 scenes in that chapter. And so just by physically typing in start scene, end scene, you know that within those parentheses, those two bookends, you have to show the story. When we talk about showing, every showing ends up in a scene of some sort. So I think before we can even talk about how do you show, we have to say, as you're writing that chapter, you have a bunch of scenes in that chapter. So let's make sure you're clear on what the scenes are. And then you can begin to think about, okay, how do I show within that scene? Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And I would even say that that's when you start to then look at the scene and ask yourself, is there enough here to to engage the reader? Have I provided enough details, enough imagery, enough <laughs> enough nuance that the, the reader is really invited in to see what I have in my mind and I'm trying to put onto paper into words. So I think the first step is that to do this, to identify your scenes and then start to evaluate your scenes. Honestly, where can you begin to flesh them out with more details. What struck me here is I've used this example several times. We've done some workshops on this. And it's all about if I were to write a memoir, but if I were to write a memoir on my boarding school experience, I would have to do an opening chapter. And that opening chapter would start with a story. So that would be my first scene in that chapter. So what would that be? So I thought possibly it would be the fall of my sophomore year when in speech class, I got up, gave a wrestling demonstration speech, asked one of my friends to come up and to help me demonstrate. And in the process, my hand slipped out showing the move. My face hit the, the cement floor with tile on top and broke out my two front teeth. That's a scene, right? So there's a beginning part when I began to ask my friend to come forward. There's all the details. And then I broke my teeth, the actual event, the actual, the movement where I actually broke my teeth, my standing back up and finishing my speech with a lisp. When I gave the weights, I did 157 because I had my two front teeth missing. And then everybody tittering and laughing, including the English teacher in the back, right? And then having to go from there to the office and then getting in the car with someone who was not my parents, because I lived in a boarding school, drive 40 minutes with this incredible pain, right? Incredible pain. Go to a dentist who I'd never met before and have a mess for two hours, sticking needles in my gums and stuff. That would be a scene, right? That would open my memoir. So it's a good example of how you have a scene that there's a start to that. And then there's the end. Maybe the end is when I come back that night and I'm all alone in my room and with no parents and, and nobody else who really, not, not that nobody cared about me, but you're alone. So that would be the end of it. So that's what we mean by a scene, having scenes in your writing. All right. So that is one strategy for you to get started story showing. And the second one is this, get rid of all basic sensory words and instead appeal to the reader's senses through imagery. And what I mean by 
basic sensory words are phrases like I heard, I felt, I smelled, I saw, I tasted. These are all telling words, phrases that push the reader further away from you and the actual experience, the actual sensory experience, right? That it's pretty flat when you say, I heard the bells, right? What what did the bells sound like? Were were they loud because you were right beneath them looking up? Or was it a distant ring because it was the neighborhood church and you were a half a mile away? The sound could be very different based on even just proximity. So you need to avoid basic sensory phrases like I heard, I felt, I smelled, I saw, I tasted. And instead, draw the readers into the very moment through imagery that engages the senses. So here's an example. Instead of I felt cold show with this way instead my teeth clacked my arms broke out in ephemeral bumps i shoved my gloveless hands deep in my pockets futilely reaching for warmth so that may be a few too many words but it shows you how cold i was right or how cold the character was or instead of telling i smelled the leaves burning show We sped down the country road, windows quarter of the way down, enough for my nostrils to be seduced by autumn's musky scent of burnt leaves. You can't, that's a much more sensory experience than I smelled the burning leaves. Those are great examples. That is exactly right. I love this idea that telling is the I feel. I feel cold. I smelled this. That's telling. But when you describe what's happening, that's showing. And I think you could also use like a simile to help also create descriptions in a sense, show through, through a simile. So that's exactly right. Just try to eliminate those sensory, word, sensory words and describe what is happening as opposed to simply, I felt cold, I walked quickly, all those things that we talk about. One quick strategy for even putting this into practice is just review whatever writing you have and underline those phrases. I felt, I saw, and see if there's an opportunity to show versus tell. So all these tips that we're giving you today, they're really practical and you can start putting them into use today. All right. What's our next point, Dave? So the third is to avoid too many emotion explaining words. Avoid too many emotion explaining words. So this is in a sense related to the previous one, and this isn't a hard and fast rule, of course. There are times when emotion explaining words are what the sentence calls for, but when you identify emotion emotion explaining words in your writing, there's likely an opportunity to actually show emotion. So here are a few examples of emotion explaining words. I felt happy, I felt sad, angry, frustrated, excited, giddy, love, anxious, joy, disgust. Here would be an example. So instead of saying the boy was sad or the boy was distraught or the boy was helpless, you could write this. Now this comes from a passage from Willa Cathra's O Pioneer. So this is, this is an example from, from her work. He cried quietly, and the few people who hurried by did not notice him. He was afraid to stop anyone, afraid to go into the store and ask for help. So he sat wringing his long sleeves and looking up a telegraph pole beside him, whimpering, my kitten, oh, my kitten, her will freeze. I love that because I 
really sense how pathetic this boy is in this moment, right? He just feels completely hopeless. You can see him wringing his sleeves. <laughs> you can see him just being terrified and and you can you can see all those things the the emotion, right? The distraughtness, the sadness, the the helplessness, but she does this through painting a scene and I I love that. She also adds that dialogue in there which is whimpering my kitten oh my kitten her will freeze i mean that that just is a great ending to that paragraph i will mention you know we said to avoid the emotion explaining words and i did notice when i was picking this as an example that she does say he was afraid to stop anyone afraid to go into the store and ask for help and that in my mind works all right because for one reason she's using it in a rhythmic way you know she's creating cadence by the repetition of he was afraid to emphasize how afraid he was but it also wouldn't work to say anything else right he he was afraid to stop anyone how else would you say that so again this is an example of it's not a hard and fast rule sometimes you have to use the emotion explaining word the big idea is that you want to identify the emotion that you want people to predominantly feel and then see if there is a way to show that. So do you have another example? So sure, here's another one. With Halloween coming up, let's use this sentence. The haunted house terrified the group of teens. The word terrified is the emotion. And one exercise is to ask, how did the teens respond to being spooked by the haunted house? What did their responses look like? So you list a few different ways that terror might look different for the different characters, maybe even depending on who they are and what they have, how they've presented themselves throughout the story up to this point. One teen cried uncontrollably. Another teen, maybe the tough jock afraid of exposing his vulnerability, laughed nervously. Another teen screamed at his friends who forced her to go through it. In the car, the group of teens had to recount each moment to separate themselves from the fear, a coping mechanism for the tear. This is pretty basic, but as soon as you push yourself to actually envision what an individual's terror in response to the haunted house might look like, you can show the readers in your writing. So again, story showing slows you down because you have to actually bring a moment and a character to life in a very distinct way. And that means that you have to place yourself in that moment, I think, and do some creative thinking. And you have to envision that in your mind. So what's really going on? So they're terrified. What would they be doing? Like, would, would somebody be rubbing his throat nervously? Would somebody be coughing with short coughs? I mean, all sorts of bizarre stuff happens when kids start to get under this kind of pressure, right? Or they they're terrified. People do different things when they're terrified. Can you imagine one of your sons like knocking the other one with a with a fist? You know, like, I can't believe you did that. Why'd you take me in there? Or... Right. There could be, there's all sorts of wacky stuff that happens when people get upset emotionally. And it's that type of thing that you need to observe in your head and then create or else maybe you, if it's a memoir, recall something that happened so that, that story showing is all about describing what happens when people feel emotion. It's not just telling that, oh, they had this emotion. I'll just back up really quick because you talked about observation. And so it's not just observing in your mind, but you also need to just become an observer of the world around you. And this has to do also with just research and collecting observations of 
people and how they react in situations because you never know how that's going to influence how you write in the future, how you show, how you story show. All right, what is our next piece of advice for story showing, Dave? It is related. So just as you describe what people do or behave when they have emotion, this is related to that. Describe body language. So body language is often a reflection of a character's feelings or emotions. People twitch. I remember once when I was in a, I used to be in a small group in church and there was a bunch of couples and there were some women who competed and you could always tell when they were kind of jostling for who was better or who was giving kind of giving a a one-up story because there would be the clearing of the throat or there would be the raising of the voice a little bit yeah you know i just you know and it was so interesting because it happened in different ways with with different people not it wasn't just the women in the group the men did it too but but you could tell when somebody was really proud of saying something and they wanted to make an emphasis like, you know, I just landed, I work with the CEO of XYZ Corporation and or I just took a trip to uh, China and oh my God, you know. And so you just, you start to watch people behave and you see their body language. So when your story's showing, you're describing that. You're not just saying that she was proud and wanted to show that to other people. You might say, or he was proud. He always coughed before every time he said something that he felt proud of or something like that. So you notice the behavior. That's a great example. So I pulled a sentence from a piece of literature by Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, and it's in the opening chapter, which is called Battle Royale. And it describes the character's response to being thrown in an unexpected scenario. The main character is invited to give a speech to the white leaders of the community, and this main character is Black. And while he's there in this ballroom, they invite him to participate in a battle royale, which is just this boxing match. And so once he's dressed with the match and taken into the ballroom where the match would take place, a naked blonde woman parades around and it's shocking to him. And here Elson describes the response of being a black man with a few of his peers among predominantly white men when this woman appears. And so you can imagine in your own mind what the response might be. And here is the simple sentence. Some of the boys stood with lowered heads trembling. I felt a wave of irrational guilt and fear. My teeth chattered, my skin turned to goose flesh, and my knees knocked. And so you can just feel the nerve of this main character, right? And how uncomfortable he was. You see, for one, his skin color, but then you see his knees knocking, right? And his teeth chattering, which is a real, it's body language, right? It it shows what his emotional state is. Again, those little ticks, like the licking of the lips or the smacking of the mouth or the quick intake of breath or the blinking, some really fast blinking, or, I mean, all those great observations. I think it was was it Faulkner talked about the three things you have to, to know to write well. One was experience, one was observation, and the other one was interpretation. But one of those is observation. And, and being an observer, how people respond and when they talk and their quirky behaviors, it, what, it's what you show when you write, and it makes for just great writing. 
All right. Our next our next strategy for showing story showing is use strong active verbs. So Dave, you and I talk about using strong verbs a lot. We've probably talked about it on this podcast before, but strong verbs build a strong visual for your reader. It helps provide a specific picture of what's going on. And I heard this analogy once that strong verbs are like a powerful zoom lens. I love this idea. And a weak verb is a lens that's zoomed out. It provides you a general picture, right? But with a strong verb, you zoom in with more clarity and you see more detailed. So a weak verb is a generalized description of what's happening and a strong verb is more specific description of what is happening. So say you're describing a person in a situation who is upset and in the scene, she walks to the kitchen sink. Since she's upset, you should ask yourself, how would an upset person walk? Would she mope? Would she drag her feet? How long would it take her to get to the sink? These are all questions that would help you then find a much sharper verb than just simply walk. And so when somebody's walking like that, do they slam the door? Do they walk loudly? Do they walk on the, you know, they slap their feet down? Do they pad quietly? Do they cough? Again, back to you, when you have observation, then you have the chance to use strong active verbs. So anytime I lay down a verb and I'm not, I'm, I know that verb is just, it's just too weak. It's just too soft. Obviously, I'll go to Google and look for some synonyms. I often don't use those synonyms, but it's enough of a stimuli or stimulus, I should say, that gets me to think about that next verb that is not maybe in those group of synonyms. But it just helps me think in a fresh way about what I'm actually trying to say. And so I think the art of this is not just to lay something down, but to envision it in your mind as you're writing it. And if you can do that, then you'll find that I think some of these stronger and active verbs will come to mind. And they just lift your writing. Like, it's just so amazing to read something that has really fresh, active even if they're just clear verbs without any adjectives, it just adds so much power to your writing. I love what you said, Dave, about thesaurus, using the thesaurus, because I think so many new writers go to thesaurus and just find a word that they think sounds fancier, right? And there's not a whole lot of discernment, right? And so I like that you're using it kind of as a prompt to get you thinking in a new direction, right? It's really... It's not you just going there and finding a word, but it, it, it really does help you kind of re-vector your thinking so you can think in a fresh way. I love that. I love it's a strategic use of a thesaurus that I've never thought of, but that's probably what good writers do. <laughs> I will say I rarely use the word that I look for in the synonyms. It usually, it, 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 something fresh comes to mind after I look at the synonyms. It's weird. I don't know how I got into that, but it is definitely kind of a little hack to help come up with better verbs. All right. Our final strategy for story showing is resist overwriting. So we're giving you all these wonderful tips and we're saying use metaphors, use similes, use five words to describe something that you previously only used one word for. And what that can do is you could have bloated writing if you try to if you try to make every single sentence image driven, right? Or to make every single sentence full of adjectives and strong verbs. I there, There's this tendency when we tell you to, to try to show, to tell, to just do too much of it. So 
you're going to have to gauge yourself, Dave. Do you have any strategies for um, identifying when you are overriding? I will say that when you find that you are spending a lot of time in description in your scenes. So we started this whole session about start to structure your chapter around scenes. That's for one thing. So each maybe have 15 scenes. As you start to read it back after you've written, let's say, a, a one scene, is how much description, the moment you start laying down description, you slow down the reader. And so your description better be good because the reader's going to bail on you. And a little dab will do you when it comes to description, right? The orange dress, the fluttering of the eyes. You don't need to say the fluttering blue eyes on the cold, sunny day. I mean, less is always more when you're writing, understating versus overstating. So if you're, if you're making the reader slow down in your writing, that's kind of a red flag that you're overwriting. You're too much description. So we talk about showing, and that is absolutely the truth. But you can't slow down the reader, and you have to make sure that you're keeping the reader moving through that scene so that he or she wants to jump into that next scene. It takes discernment, right? You have to be discerning as you write, and then you have to be discerning as you start the review process. If it's taking you a lot to get through a sentence and you're like, whoa, that's too long, I'm kind of bored of myself, then you're likely going to bore your reader, right? So you just got to be aware of that. What may sound great with your first draft, as soon as you read it out loud or you, you, you read it just quietly to yourself, you might say, yeah, that's overdone. So just put on that, that reviewer hat and try to be objective and try to imagine how the reader is experiencing your writing. I was listening to Sutri, which is another book by Cormac McCarthy, who's my favorite author probably all time. And he wrote The Road and he wrote No Country for Old Men, which is also where those two were made into movies. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And I thought I had like read most of his stuff. And I realized there's two books I have yet to read. One is Sutri and the other one's called Outer Dark. And so I picked up Sutri and I, I'm not reading, I'm listening to it on Audible. And when you listen to it, I'm like, how does he get away? He'll go for two to three paragraphs, it seems, describing a scene, like describing. We talked about minimizing your description. He just goes, he, he'll describe this whole scene before there's any movement at all in the story. And I thought, Cormac McCarthy can do that. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot do that because I don't have this skill to describe and create scenes and to show that description of what's happening like he does. So I think for those of us who are not as uh, mature of writers as Cormac, you, you have to really limit your descriptions. And when you do describe, you have to show, you don't tell the feeling, you show the feeling. All right, I'm going to just go through our six strategies for story showing. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> it is. Lots of sh story <laughs> okay. showing. Story showing. So the first one is add start scene and end scene to your document before you go to the work on showing. The second is to get rid of all basic sensory words and instead appeal to the reader's senses through imagery. The third is avoid too many emotion explaining words. 
The fourth is describe body language. The fifth is use strong active verbs. And then the sixth, which we just ended on, is resist overriding. All right. Well, I'm inspired to go do some more showing versus telling story showing. (laughs) (laughs) It is so hard. And I think it's just one of those great fundamentals of writing that you have to keep going back to no matter how experienced you are. There is this default default mode to describe as opposed to show what's actually happening because it's just a higher level of writing. And since all of us don't have, as writers, all we have are words to create imagery in the minds of the reader. That's all we have. And so because of that, then we have to really pay attention to how do we evoke emotion without simply saying, she felt scared, she felt angry. How do we show that she was angry? And that is just a great skill of writing. And it's, it's kind of the pursuit of a lifetime. <laughs> and I think no matter where you are in this, Story showing is something you have to keep coming back to. A perfect note to end on. Let's move into our words of the episode before we officially sign off. I'll go first, Dave, and mine is Battle Royal. It's not Battle Royale. It's Battle Royal. I I looked it up and it's Royal, even though I always thought it was Battle Royale. So there may be two versions, two pronunciations, two spellings. But when I looked it up in the dictionary, it's Battle Royal. And it simply means a fiercely contested fight or dispute. So in the, in the Invisible Man, the um, section that I read just previously, the chapter title is Battle Royal. And so in this chapter, the main character is invited to participate in a battle royal, which specifically was going to be a boxing match, right, where there was a winner who prevailed. But metaphorically, it can mean a battle between two adversaries, right? Um, A contested fight or dispute. So like, I suppose it could be used to describe a game between the Packers and Bears. Like there was a battle royal on the field between the Packers and the Bears, which is kind of a Well, the Green Bay Packers always destroy the Bears. So I don't know if that's a battle royal or not. All right. Well, I'm a Bears fan. I'm a a Bears (laughs) fan, but man. (laughs) On their best day. So what's your word of the episode, Dave? So mine is a common word, but the reason I used it today or or, uh, added it for my word of the episode is because I I saw my favorite, uh, one of my favorite sports announcers use it wrongly. So the word is mea, mea culpa, and it, it's a Latin phrase that means my fault or my mistake. And it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of having done wrong. So if you, you, let's just say I ran over her bike, I go, whoops, mea culpa. You know, actually, I would do <laughs> That'd something That would be a little bit like, flippant, Dave. <laughs> yeah, that would be a little flippant. But may, whoops, I was wrong. But you know, it's a phrase, and it's a Latin phrase, and, and you hear it a lot, but he said it, mea culpa. Oh, it's mea. It's not mea culpa. It's mea culpa. Okay, and I always well, thought I it was mea culpa. Well, there we go. I'm going to sound so much smarter now, or everybody's going to look at me like I'm wrong because everybody else is saying it the wrong way. <laughs> totally. 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 <laughs> All right. We enjoyed this podcast episode so much, and we hope that you really dig into story showing and maybe even send us a couple of paragraphs of how you are, how are you incorporating some of the strategies that we've shared today? 
All right, Dave, I think that's it. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm-hmm.